I'm A.K. Kerovilla, the pastor for community groups here at Bay City Fellowship. As we worship God by listening to his word this morning, uh, let's turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5, verses 1 through 12, and that's what we'll reflect on. When we think about how we live and how we worship, and when it is shaped by things that we watch or we hear, we could do all kinds of strange things. I'm reminded of the story of the little boy who wanted a red bike. His parents told him to pray and ask God for it. He didn't quite know how to pray, so he decided to learn that from his television. He turned on to one channel, it was a high church, and after that he prayed, Eternal and everlasting God, if it is in your perfect will that I get this red bike, please have this bike delivered to my door tomorrow morning, well without end, amen. Well, morning came and there was no bike there. Well, he decided that didn't work, so he looked at another channel, and this time he prayed, Lord Jesus, you love to give good gifts to your children. I named this red bike and I claim it. Please have this delivered to me tomorrow morning. Morning came, there was no bike. He was pretty disappointed. As he walked through the house, he saw the statue of Mother Mary. So he decided to take that, went out into his backyard, and he buried that there. He came back into his house, and his mother saw him on his knees. And this was his prayer. Now, Jesus, if you want your mother back, we do all kinds of things when what we, how we live and how we worship is shaped by what we watch and what we hear. So as we look into God's word this morning, uh, let us look at it with a view of letting it shape how we live and worship. With that, move to Matthew chapter 5, 1 through 12. There are two terms that I would like to, uh, to explain here before we get in, just for context. In verse, four, uh, in verse 17 of chapter 4, we hear, From that time Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Then again in verse 23, we read, Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. So that brings us to the question, what is this gospel of the kingdom? What is this good news of the kingdom? What is this kingdom? A kingdom is all about rule. The king rules over his people, and people submit to the king's rules and desires. The good news that Jesus is announcing is this. Look, the rule of the king of heaven is right here because Jesus himself was there. And then we want to look at what repentance is all about. Why does it require one to repent to be part of this kingdom? And if that's what it is, what do we need to repent of? If you look at verses 14 through 16 of the previous chapter, you find that there is a reference to the book of Isaiah. The prophet God had sent him to his people and tell them, look, you have walked away from God Repent or turn around and walk towards God. So it was a question of the Messiah being here to establish his kingdom, namely Jesus. So repent meant turn around from walking away from God and walking towards God. Submit to his rule and his desires and his kingship. 
So that was the repent. So Jesus says, repent, the king is here, be part of this kingdom. And in chapters 5 through 7, Jesus goes on to tell us what this kingdom life is all about. Verses 1 and 2. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, and now we have a list of short statements, eight of them, which start with the word blessed. They are known as beatitudes, uh, derived from the Latin beatus, or beati in plural, for blessedness, being fortunate, being happy, being prosperous. That would be kind of the range of meanings. The first thing that we observe here, obviously, is the word blessed. Blessed are the poor, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the gentle, etc. Now, what does it mean when we say blessed? Because we use that term uh, in many ways. I am blessed. God bless you. Many blessings. Stay blessed. So what does that really mean? In this case, blessed means that God's favor on a person is being enjoyed. It is not a happiness that results from circumstances, but it is a satisfaction, a fullness and a happiness that comes out of experiencing God's favor on him or on one's life. So blessedness is about God's favor on one's life. Another thing we observe is that uh, there is a reference to the kingdom of heaven. Verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then again in verse 10, blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, in those two cases, what you find is, Jesus saying, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So it's present tense. The kingdom of heaven is right there for them. Now, in the other blessed statements from verses 4 through 9, you find uh, that the promises are for the future. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. So the kingdom is here, but there are some promises that will be fulfilled in the future. Now you wonder, how does that work? If the kingdom is here, why is it that some of these things only apply to the future? It is Jesus saying this. In one sense, the kingdom of heaven is present with the disciples right now. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven but that the full blessings of the kingdom will have to wait for the age to come. They shall inherit the earth. In other words, Jesus has brought the kingdom of heaven to earth. He is the king, and we can enjoy foretastes of it here and now. But the full experience of all the blessings will have to wait for the age to come. Already here, but not yet and complete. So that's the set, a setup there with all those statements. So two assurances, theirs is the kingdom of heaven, and six promises sandwiched in between. Let's go into verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Who are the poor in spirit? It is the destitute, those who have to beg, those who don't have the resources, 
They can't buy their way into the kingdom. They can't lobby their way into the kingdom. They cannot use power and influence to get into the kingdom. The kingdom is for those who have no resources and who don't have the self-sufficiency to get that. They are completely dependent on God's mercy and grace. If God is not your only hope, it is going to be very difficult to be in the kingdom. But if God is your only hope, the kingdom of heaven is for you because we rely on his mercy and grace to be in his kingdom. And if you're poor in spirit, the kingdom of heaven is right here for you. You experience the rule of God in your life and circumstances right here when you submit to his rule. And that's what Jesus tells us. Verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, who would not want that blessing? Uh, listen to the words in Revelation 21.4. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. So there is coming a time when we experience the full blessings. For those who mourn, they shall be com comforted. But there is, in a sense, a foretaste of a preview of that comfort we experience right now. Second Corinthians chapter 1 talks about God being the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction. Uh, there is also another level of comfort that we need to see. In, in, in this statement about mourning and comfort, there is a reference to Isaiah chapter 61. And the idea there was people who had walked away from God heard from the prophet, and there was a mourning over their sin. So in that sense, we don't have to mourn over our sin anymore when we trust Jesus and uh, his finished work on the cross for us. The forgiveness of sin is a comfort for us that we don't have to mourn over sin anymore. Verse 5, blessed are the gentle, or the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Who wouldn't want to their inheritance. Now, this word gentle or meek uh, is really not about weakness. Meekness is not weakness. The word was used about breaking a horse. Now, I haven't done it, but you may have seen it done uh, on a YouTube video, or you may have done it yourself. The horse is powerful and strong, but it has a will of its own. If it needs to be broken, the rider gets on it, and starts riding, and the, and the horse might throw him or her out, off the, ho off, the, off the horse. And then what they do is they get back on the horse and keep doing this till they get to a point where the horse's will is broken. At that point, the horse submits to the will of the rider. So it's power under control. When the horse is meek and broken, the horse has not lost his power or his strength. It's will under control. Jesus was described as gentle and meek. He was not a pushover. He had all of God's power in perfect control, obedient to the Father. It is such people who will enjoy the inheritance of the earth, says Jesus. Now, even here, we can get a foretaste of what is to come. We get to enjoy our inheritance meaning we get to enjoy all what God has for us when we submit to his will 
in obedience. Think of the children of Israel. They were redeemed from bondage in Egypt. And they came through to Mount Sinai. God gave them the law. From there to the promised land, it was a, an 11-day journey. That's what the Bible tells us. It was an 11-day journey for which they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. Why? Because they had to be humbled. They had to be prepared. They had to learn a thing or two about the blesser before they got the blessing. So there was a training ground and a learning that was involved, all because of their disobedience. Meekness allows us to enjoy all that God has for us, even here on this earth. I hope this won't happen to any of us. Let it not be that an 11-day trip for us takes 40 years because we are not meek and won't, won't listen to what God is saying and move in obedience. Verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. Now, who wouldn't want that? We want righteousness. Righteousness is the state of being right in God's sight. There is a hunger to be right in God's sight, both for us in person. There is a hunger to live in a way that pleases God. There is an insatiable appetite for righteousness. So God is saying, those are the kinds of people uh, who are going to be satisfied when in the age to come. God will satisfy us. But we get a foretaste of that here on earth as well. Jesus said, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. He was referring to all those things that were causing anxiety for people. And he said, You seek first, not second or third, but first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then you enjoy the satisfaction and the contentment that comes with it because God is in control. Verse 7 Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Who wouldn't want mercy? To be merciful is to remove pain and suffering and misery, and difficulty. It is a tangible act of removing misery. When we stand before God in judgment, says Jesus, we will be extended mercy because we have been merciful. Now, there is a flip side to that. We are able to be merciful because God has extended mercy to us already. But because we have been merciful, God will extend mercy to us in the age to come. That is part of the biblical fabric, and that's how it's represented for us. And we do get a foretaste of that here as well. When we, as the people of God, give and receive mercy, then we get a taste of what is to come to experience mercy from the hand of God. Verse 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Jesus is not saying, get your act together. He's not saying, clean up your behavior. He is talking about the purity of heart, purity of desires, purity of affections, purity of motives. He's talking about being authentic and honest before God. If you want to see God, you have to have purity of heart. And we get a foretaste of that as well here on earth, whereas the full blessings are in the age to come. Those who pay attention to purity of heart 
which comes only by trusting him and obeying him, they are the ones who experience the power and presence of God in their lives and in their circumstances. They have a heart that's totally devoted to pleasing God and see God at work in and around them. And that's when they experience the power and the work of God. Verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Peacemakers. Now, this has nothing to do with an Enneagram number. In fact, God is not giving us an excuse to hide behind a number either. Peacemakers are people who are able to bring two people in conflict together to encourage them to see what is true, to encourage them to follow what is true, and then to act according to what is true. The blessing, of course, here is that they get a tremendous title. They are called the children of God. They have their dad's DNA. And we get a foretaste of that here. For example, James 3 tells us, The seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Peacemakers create a climate that fosters godliness and righteousness. Righteousness can flourish only if there is peace. And without peace, you cannot have righteousness. So peacemakers have the DNA of God himself because they encourage peace, which fosters godliness and righteousness. So blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Verses 10 and 12, 10 through 12. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men cast insults at you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, he's not talking about persecution because they did something that was evil. He's talking about persecution because they stood for what God stood for and follow the methods that God would follow. And then, if persecution is the consequence, consider that it is a badge of honor. That is what Jesus tells us. The kingdom is yours, and you have a reward waiting for you. And if it is a reward from God, it will be well worth it, wouldn't it? Now, if you are hearing this, uh, and you're saying, I'd love those blessings, I want to be part of this kingdom because it's irresistible. You can. If you're not part of the kingdom, you can. Jesus says, repent. Stop walking away from God. Turn around. Repent and walk toward God. Submit to his rule in obedience. Accept his kingship in your life. Submit to his rule in your life. That's what we need to do to be part of the kingdom. Now, if you trust Jesus and are part of the kingdom, then we have to look into this mirror and think about our own lives. Mourning over sin, meekness, hunger and thirst for righteousness, being merciful, a pure heart, peacemaking. Does that really characterize our lives? And how does that play out in, let's say, our contemporary life? We live in a rather difficult time. Now, some of you might say, well, it's not too bad. 
I have food, I've got water, I've got Wi-Fi, and I've got Netflix. Things can't be so bad, could it? But the reality is there are some things going on around us. There is a COVID pandemic. That's the reality. There is a reality of racial tensions. And as if that were not enough, we have the re reality of an election season that is heating up. We have the trifecta, a trifecta that can affect the unity of our body and our church. What do we do when, when we have significant differences of opinion? Do we engage in verbal battles? Do we break fellowship with brothers and sisters? Do we demean those who disagree with us? We have to take a long and hard look at how we conduct ourselves, don't we? If we hunger and thirst after righteousness, which is the characteristic of someone who belongs to the kingdom of God, if we hunger and thirst after righteousness, that is, we hunger and thirst after that which is right in God's sight, then we have to hear what God has to say about living and worshiping in such an environment. Unity is important. Why is it important? Because unity is important to God. Remember Jesus' prayer that we read in John 17. I pray that they will all be one just as you and I are one. As you are in me, Father, and I am in you. And may they be in us so that the world will believe you sent me. Unity witnesses to our Savior. All hear the words of the Apostle Paul recorded for us in the, in the book of Ephesians, chapter 4. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance to one another in love, being diligent, that is, apply yourself fervently, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Because after all, we love the same Savior. We experience the power of the same Holy Spirit. We worship the same Father. Unity is important to God. How do we then look as a body of believers? If people were to watch our speech, our words, and our actions, will they find us diligently perceiving, pursue, diligently pursuing unity? Will someone on the outside looking at us say this? Look at all those people at Bayou City Fellowship. They are so diverse, diverse in their ideologies, diverse in their political leanings, diverse in their perspectives, diverse in their experiences. But they so hunger and thirst to be right in God's sight that they work with humility and gentleness and patience, showing tolerance to one another in love. There is something unusual and refreshing about these people at Bayou City Fellowship. Is that what the watching world sees? If we believe that's the case, we are in good, good hands. But if that's not the case, brothers and sisters, each of us has to take a really long and hard look as to where it is that we're really struggling to submit to the rule of the king. Or take meekness, for they're, uh, they're the ones who inherit the earth. Meekness, we saw, is power under control. So let's take our words, for example. Our words have tremendous power. 
Is that under control? Is the fruit of the Spirit self-controlled evident in how we use our words, especially in the environment that we're in? For example, we read in Colossians that we are called to speak the truth with grace. Is grace evident in our words? Spoken words, written words, email words, text message words, social media words. Is grace evident in all our communication? You know, we have to be extra careful with written words. Text and social media posts don't allow us to carry nonverbal communication. If I were to sit here and talk to you, you can see the expression on my face. There is a whole lot of nonverbal communication that goes on. So I can perhaps speak a hard truth with an enormous amount of grace. But that does not easily happen in written communication unless I take the pains to communicate grace in those words. Our words have enormous power. And this becomes extremely important when we have serious differences of opinion. And our words not only have power, they also have serious implications. And here is a sobering thought. Jesus tells us that on the day of judgment, we will have to give account for every careless word we speak. Is meekness evident in the use of our words? Now, we have the freedom to speak what's on our minds. All God is calling us to do is speak the truth and do that with grace. But we also have the freedom to refrain from saying what we need to say if it is detrimental to God's plans and purposes. It's the freedom we have as being children of God. We have the freedom to speak and the freedom to refrain as well. So how do we look as a body of believers? Is meekness evident in our words? When we engage with a brother or sister who have opposing views, how, does our, how do our words come across, spoken and written? And how does our interaction come across to those who are watching? Well, those who are watching say, there goes AK. He works with patience, humility, gentleness, and tolerance, with meekness in his words as he engages those who are having views that are opposing to his. If we need to say something, let's say it with grace. Use our freedom to refrain from speaking if that is best to accomplish God's purposes. So what are we going to do in the environment that we are in? Jesus closed his sermon Five, uh, going through chapters 5, 6, and 7, uh, with this illustration in chapter 7. He talks about two people who built houses, two identical homes. If we were to use a sanctified imagination, we might say two perfect homes, two homes that you would call dream homes if you were looking for one. They were identical, custom-built, exquisitely appointed interiors, perfect curb appeal. The only difference was one was built on a foundation of rock and the other was on sand. Storm season. The rains came down, the floods came up. The winds blew and beat against the house. One stood firm, 
the other fell flat. And then Jesus says this, Everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to the wise man who built his house upon the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to the wise man who built his house upon the rock. So we have to ask ourselves this question today. What are we going to do with what we have heard? Father God, we thank you for uh, you speak to us. And you speak to us with an intention that, that we would follow you in obedience as being citizens of your kingdom, that our wills may be totally submitted to you. And in so doing, that we might represent you well wherever you call us to be. Help us, Lord, move our desires and our affections so that we may obey you, that you may be pleased with our lives as we live in a way that pleases you. That is our desire, and Holy Spirit, help us to that. And we ask this in Jesus, our Lord's precious name. Amen.